very broadly. Um, one of the rules of thumb is that um, the rate of evolution is is almost proportional to the um, magnitude of the selection pressure. And so what I mean by that is that uh, we see herbicide resistance um, sort of at the forefront of a lot of our discussions. Uh, first of all, because it's impacting farmers, but then also because herbicides are a very large selection pressure on a population, right? Uh, so in general, herbicides are, I mean, they're registered because they're highly efficacious. They, they control a large percentage of that population. So welcome everyone to The Growing Point. Um, it has been, oh my goodness, a number of months since we've actually done a podcast. There's been a lot of changes um, at, at the commissions um, and it's it's just, we haven't been able to tackle podcasts, but you know, we're getting into a new year. Um, a lot of topics are coming up as concern and um, we wanted to get back at these podcasts. So I apologize for those who love listening to the podcasts um, for the delay, but we are back um, and we're back with, someone that I'm looking forward to having a conversation with Charles Geddes. And, you know, Charles is a research scientist um, with weed ecology and cropping systems at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lethbridge. Uh, he's in the science and technology branch. Um, and he's been a part of uh, many different groups. Uh, he did his, his bachelor's of science at the University of Manitoba, uh, a doctor of philosophy uh, in plant science at the University of Manitoba. He is part of the American Society for Agronomy, the Crop Science Society of America, the Canadian Society of Agronomy, the Canadian Weed Science Society, the Weed Science Society of America. And I know I work with him um, on occasion on the Resistance Wild Oat Action Committee. He also has 46 publications in the weed science area. Um, so very knowledgeable um, in Canadian weed science and integrated weed management. Um, you know, Charles, we were we were just chatting about the amount of locations you've been traveling to and communicating about kosha and weed management and herbicide resistance. Um, is this are we coming to a pinch point here with resistance management? Um, are are we kind of realizing we're up to our ears? in resistance and everyone everyone's looking for information on this um or are we just kind of getting back into the flow of things after covid and and realizing oh my goodness we used to travel like this all the time um <laughs> but uh now we're booked back to full swing again yeah so well first of all i mean thanks for the introduction and uh and to get at your your question there um is when it comes to resistance it's I, I mean, it's it's definitely a growing issue for farmers across the the Canadian prairies and elsewhere, right? So, it's uh, it's really tough for me to say what it's like for for some of the other disciplines and whether they're just as busy as we are. They might be, right? Um, but uh, I know for for us weed scientists, particularly this year, it's it's been very busy as far as people wanting to hear about about what's going on when it comes to herbicide resistance and and uh and sort of get up to date on on management practices right so it seems to be a very active discipline um and uh and exciting as well so it, it's it's hard to say I, I think resistance um the fact that that each year it is growing right so 
Um, it's becoming more and more of an issue for many farmers, um, and uh, they they want to hear about about what to do about it. Yeah, and and maybe we can thresh that out a little. Becoming more and more of an issue for more farmers. You know, reading your um, your recent research paper um, and research on on kosha and, and kosha resistance in Alberta. Um, and you do a great job of comparing that historically to what we saw in previous surveys of what kind of resistance levels we're seeing. Um, and it, it, it you know, I, I'd love for you to one, get into the details of what kind of advancement we've seen in resistance in kosha and Alberta. And, and if, if you feel like in, in all of Western Canada, um, and again, you know, do we feel like we are behind in trying to manage this? It feels like it's moving quicker than we're able to adjust our management. Um, do you feel that way? Um, is this something that we can potentially get a hold on to, or are we going to, is it going to get away from us? Yeah. Uh, so I guess, for, first of all, we, we do a lot of research on kosher, right? So uh, being located in in southern Alberta, kosher makes up a large part of our research program just because it is one of the big resistance issues that farmers are dealing with in this area. Um, and also, I mean, uh, as of recent across the southern Canadian prairies, right? So there's been a lot of, a lot of focus on, on trying to um, understand herbicide resistant kosher and then come up with tools and, and ways to to help manage some of these new types of resistance that we're seeing. Um, so the the paper that you were referring to was the, the 2021 um, survey of herbicide resistant kosher in Alberta. And uh, so in general, first of all, these surveys have taken place um, basically since uh, using the same methodology um, sort of doing a different province each year almost. Um, and this, uh, the particular surveys kind of are in their current methodology. They started in 2012. So the year after uh, glyphosate resistant kosher was found in Southern Alberta. Um, so we've, we've uh, and I didn't start these surveys actually, right? So these, these were initially started by Hugh Becky, who is a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada uh, based out of Saskatoon. And so he retired in, in uh, 2018 from AFC. And that's kind of when, when uh, this uh, survey methodology transferred to sort of the next generation of weed scientists across the prairies. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll just outline, first of all, what we're seeing when it comes to herbicide resistant kosher. Um, so it started off with group two resistance in the late 80s, um, starting in 88. And uh, group two resistance essentially spread to all kosher populations across the prairies, where 100% of the kosher populations that are tested nowadays um, are group two resistance or, or, or have some level of group two resistance. Um, then glyphosate resistance was first documented in, in kosher in Canada, um, just in southern Alberta in 2011. And so this started off in uh, chemical fallow fields and uh, then sort of moved out from there. Um, and so the survey in 2012, uh, the Alberta survey, showed that 4% of the populations uh, at the time had some level of glyphosate resistance. Uh, 
Then the survey was repeated five years later in 2017, showing a, a rapid increase from 4% to now 50% of the populations that were sampled had some level of glyphosate resistance. Um, also in that 2017 survey was the first documentation of uh, synthetic auxin or, or resistance to what we call auxin mimics or group four herbicides. Um, so 18% of the populations had dicamba resistance and 13% had furoxpyr resistance. And then getting into this new survey, um, the 2021 survey, we found that 78% of populations have some level of glyphosate resistance, then 28% have some level of dicamba resistance, and 44% have some level of fluoroxpyr resistance. Um, so resistance in kosher is, is spreading rapidly, right? And uh, I think that that's also been exacerbated by some of the the dry weather that we've had across the prairies um, and, and especially in sort of uh, Southern Alberta, Southern Saskatchewan over the last uh, almost five years. Right. Um, so yeah, the, the, the problem is, is certainly growing um, and we're seeing similar observations in the other prairie provinces as well, uh, where, where there's uh, there, there's a similar level of resistance uh, in the 2019 survey of Saskatchewan. Um, so looking at, at uh, fairly high levels of both glyphosate and uh, camber resistance. Uh, that survey, we didn't look at fluoroxpyr resistance. Um, but then also in Manitoba um, in 2018, 58% of the populations had glyphosate resistance and 1% had dicamba resistance. So a little bit lower for synthetic auxin resistance in Manitoba based on that survey anyway. Um, and if, I guess if all of that wasn't bad enough, we, we are also working on confirming uh, the first population of PPO inhibitor resistance um, on the prairies. Uh, so we had a population submitted to our program in 2021, um, suspecting group 14 resistance. And, uh, and so the work that we've done so far has shown that, that there's plants in that population that survive um, up to and uh, likely more than 16 times the high field rate of saflufenicil. Right. So it's uh, there's definitely some res resistance there. And, and our new work right now is working on trying to characterize that population to sort of um, generate some of this knowledge that's required um, to, to manage this issue. Because with how quickly resistance spreads in kosher, um, this could become a, a big issue across a wide land base in a pretty short time. Yeah, it, it honestly, Charles, it feels like we are. We're at that point. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I want to ask you to maybe tweeze out something you've mentioned on each of those percentage of resistance, which you've mentioned some level of resistance. Um, and what I gain from that is that there's different levels of resistance within those percentage. So low, medium, high resistance. How do you categorize that? What does that mean for a producer? Does is it is is that important information for a producer or is that important information for the research side? Um, so if you could just tweeze out that a little bit. Yeah, that's a really, really uh, good point, right? Um, so when we talk about herbicide resistance, there's, there's may, I guess it's mainly communicated on the level of what I, what I call frequency of resistance or 
the percentage of populations that have some level of resistance or that resistance trait is present within the population, right? Um, but then the real question is, what does that mean to a farmer or an agronomist, right? Um, so we, uh, the other thing to consider is that within any given population, the percentage of plants or percentage of individuals in that population that have the resistance trait varies quite widely, right? So it's, it obviously starts off with a very low number of, of plants in the population that are resistant. And um, through recurrent selection pressure with that herbicide or similar herbicides, uh, you can see that those plants go to seed, contribute to the seed bank, and, and it just grows within that population, right? So that's what we mean. That's what we call incidence of herbicide resistance, right? So what we found uh, with this most recent survey of Alberta in 2021, um, we kind of, uh, we looked at both the frequency and the incidence of resistance and how that's kind of compared with the, the previous two rounds of surveys that we've done for kosha um, in Alberta. And so what we've found is, is that both, uh, uh, we know that the frequency um, of resistance or the, the percentage of populations that have the trait um, are growing, right? Um, but also the distribution across populations for resistance incidence is also shifting where we're seeing a greater percentage of plants in populations that have that trait, right? Um, so what that means is that uh, herbicide resistance in kosher is not only impacting more fields and more farms, but it's having a greater impact on the fields and farms where it does occur. Yeah, just to tie that back to what it means for management, though, um, we, we tend to use around the 20% resistance incidence as, as sort of the threshold. Um, if you have a resistance incidence above that, uh, then it, it becomes visually obvious in the field that you're experiencing lack of control. And the reason why we, we use that, that sort of arbitrary threshold um, is because um, when you're talking about uh, herbicide regulators and registration of a herbicide for control of a particular weed, um, it's an 80% control threshold to be labeled as control, right? Um, so it, basically anything, um, any escapes that you have sort of 20% or less could just be escapes from that herbicide in general, right? Um, but above that, it tends to become a bit more visually obvious to a farmer or an agronomist. I would imagine that would make it harder to catch the onset of resistance if the expectation is 80% control. Um, because this is how would a producer then know when to test their potentially resistant kosha if the expectation is 80% control you know there's some there do I send it in um, you know probably it's best to to mitigate any risk and send it in if there's any potential right and just based on the map and how prolific this resistance is growing it's probably in the best interest to to test anything that has has potential risk but I imagine that onset of saying hey I'm going to be making management changes to try and mitigate some of this resistance it must be maybe difficult to kind of make that leap or know when it's, you should make that leap to try and catch it as early as possible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think, I think that's where 
field scouting really comes into play, right? So um, we we know that that there are some kind of telltale signs of of resistance in a field, right? Um, one one of the big ones uh, is if you're scouting, um, say three weeks after your your in crop or your post emergence herbicide, um, or after you apply any herbicide in general, we could say. Um, look for um, plants of that same species that are controlled and um, besides sort of survivors um, for the same species, right? Um, that's one kind of telltale sign that there, there could be resistance present in the field. And, and if you do see that, then it's encouraged to, um, to seek some form of, of resistance testing to confirm it as well. Um, but you, you bring up a really good point, right? Um, once you get to that, um, it's really hard to tell in that sort of zero to 20%. Um, but then once you get past 20%, it's kind of too late, right? It's, it's already having a, a fairly large impact on the field. And, and uh, then what do you do, right? Um, so I think that resistance testing um it can be a really valuable tool, but it should be considered proactively as well, um, where you're sort of in that gray area um, before it becomes um, a big enough issue that you're seeing a large impact on that field. So, you know, I'm, I'm, my mind my mind is kind of moving on the decision-making that would happen in this process. And, okay, if, if we need to catch it early, but it's we're unsure how to exactly... Um, catch that early without testing. So, hey, let's change our management practices now and try and mitigate development of resistance um, or mitigate, you know, the continuation of the growing of resistance on my farm. Um, so I'm going to implement these practices. And then I get this visual of uh, the, the, the hypothetical man rowing his boat in a storm across the ocean of like, we have these resistant management practices that we recommend, rotation, layering, uh, all of these things that we'll recommend um, with a problem as significant as this, with a weed that can develop resistance as quick as this and, and um, you know, take advantage of a situation when really farmers and crops are at their weakest in drought conditions. Um, are we trying to plug the dam with a small cork here like are these practices do we do we have an idea of the the impact that these practices can actually make or is that something we need to get a better understanding of yeah i, th I think we we do have at least an initial idea on sort of recommended best management practices for um mitigating herbicide resistant kosher for example or even managing it when it's present right so um we've just as an example um, over the last five years, I've been leading a, a project through the integrated crop agronomy cluster um, that's looking at managing herbicide resistant kochia in Western Canadian cropping systems. Um, so we've, we've done a series of different projects uh, ranging from trying to understand the biology of kochia to um, looking at how do you manage kochia um, in crop rotations, right? So we found that, that one of the the big keys, um, I think, to to managing uh, kochia is trying to exploit uh, the fact that it has a fairly short-lived seed bank, right? So um, kochia seeds tend to only persist for about one to two years in the soil. And uh, so what that means is that if you can 
um, try and limit or even eliminate um, seed from growing back into the soil seed bank for a couple of years in a row. That goes a long way to depleting a kosher population in a field. Um, so the question then becomes, how do you limit kosher seed production, right? Um, and we've found that kosher tends to respond quite well um, to cultural management. Um, and the way that it responds is that it reduces its biomass and seed production. Um, in one, one of our studies looking at a, a wheat, spring wheat, canola, spring wheat, lentil uh, rotation um, across the four years of the study, um, we were looking at implementing herbicide layering to manage glyphosate and group two resistant kochia. Um, but in that rotation, we had it repeated in sort of a wide versus narrow row spacing. So 18 inches, so quite wide versus um, narrow or, or narrow, which was nine inches. Um, in addition to recommended seeding rates for each of those crops or double the recommended seeding rates throughout the rotation. Um, and what we found is that if you combine the narrow row spacing and the higher seeding rate, you can see an 80% reduction in kosher biomass uh, just with integrating those two cultural methods. Um, and so the same herbicide programs, right? So um, cultural management does go a long way to, to help um, mitigate and manage this issue for kosher. Um, and again, I mentioned uh, tying this back to herbicide regulators, that 80% control threshold is actually equivalent to um, a new effective herbicide mode of action that would be labeled for control, right? So um, it's, it's, it's actually kind of astonishing that we're seeing the same level of control by integrating two cultural practices together as you would with a new herbicide. It's, it's good to know. It's, uh, when you see numbers like that on the research in the survey, it's, you, you, you got to ask the question. But it's good to know that you know these practices, they do have an impact in producers adopting these best management practices, not just for um, yield uh, potential and, and yield acquisition, but, but mitigating this uh, weed resistance um, growing issue. Uh, so this morning I was, you know, again, perusing through your, um, your paper. And I, I was looking through other papers you had published e recently on kosher. And uh, one that popped up that was a phrase that I, I've actually never heard before, I hadn't encountered before. Um, but it was serotonin. Uh, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that properly. Um, but I was reading through it. And it was kind of, ooh, this, this is a little bit of a concern for what you've just mentioned in terms of the, the two year um, life cycle of, of um, kosher weed seeds in the seed bank. Um, so I'm wondering whether you can touch on that and just um, maybe provide context to what that means for the whole story. Yeah, yeah. So um, so at least I pronounce it serotony. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, yeah, this is kind of a, a different concept in, in sort of the weed science space. Um, and I'm not really sure how it all came together, but uh, I think um, mostly I was just kind of thinking about the biology of kosher, which I tend to do because I do a lot of research on kosher. Um, but uh, anyway, so the the whole idea, um, I think it, it it mainly applies to actually like the the forestry area, um, where where some of you may may have heard. 
um, of seeds uh, being retained um, either in cones or on, um, on tree species, right? And so these tree species retaining their seeds in what's, what's called an aerial seed bank as opposed to a soil seed bank, right? Um, so seeds present in plant canopies and persisting above ground. Um, and then in a lot of these species, um, the release of seeds from that plant canopy is triggered by fire, right? Um, so, so that's an example of serotony where seeds are persisting on the plant um, in an aerial seed bank, and then some sort of a trigger causes the release of those seeds. Um, and then what that does is it allows that species to essentially plant its seeds at the right time that maximizes the potential for emergence and su successful establishment, right? Um, so, I mean, I, I had heard this concept applied to forestry before, um, and there's been uh, kind of a limited mention of, of aerial seed banks um, in the literature uh, related to other plant species as well. So um, my question was, does, does this apply to weed species and, and specifically does this apply to kochia as well, right? Maybe not the fire trigger necessarily, um, but does kochia retain its seed in on the plant, right? Um, and is that sort of one mechanism for how kochia can persist? Um, so we know the seed bank is quite short lived, um, but we also know that despite that, kochia is becoming more and more of an issue on the prairies, right? Um, so how is it persisting, right? Um, so that's kind of what we set out to determine. And so to start off, we, we just did a, a simple survey in the spring, right? So kochia being a summer annual, it grows throughout the summer, produces its seed um, kind of mostly through late August, September. Um, then it, it uh, senesces. Um, and sometimes depending on, on the morphology of the plant, it could break up at the stem and become a tumbleweed, right? Um, so, so what we did was we went out in the spring and we collected kosher plants uh, that were either still attached to the soil or had tumbled away as tumbleweeds. And all we did was just look at how much seed, viable seed was still on those plants in the spring um, in May. So right around the, the time that uh, farmers would be seeding, right? And across, um, we, we measured this at over a hundred sites. And, and what we found is that on average, um, just over 2,000 seeds were present on each kosher plant, right? This is averaged across a wide range of sites. Um, but 2,000 seeds per plant is still pretty substantial, right? So uh, essentially what we determined is that, is that kosher does exhibit some form of seed serotony where it can keep its seeds above ground in an aerial seed bank. And that's one sort of mechanism that it can used to um, get past the um, large amount of seed decay that we see in the soil seed bank, right? So it's almost evading its mortality by keeping its seed 
above the soil where it's not subjected to that same level of microbial decay. So we may have to start GPS tracking some of these tumbleweeds and see how long it holds seeds for. Cause you know, based on my math, that's now two and a half years then instead of, you know, the two year potential or, or does it need the, you know, whether it needs to overwinter for that decay to occur, but um, you know, if it can hold on for another year or two, then that changes. It's a, it's an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. So, so it, oh, this, this opened up a lot of questions for, for um, potentially further research trying to understand the biology of kosher, right? So uh, one thing is that is that uh, retaining seeds in aerial seed banks could uh, contribute to um, prolonged persistence of, of those seeds, right? Because they're, they're now in both the soil and an aerial seed bank. The, the other thing... Um, that is quite likely is that it's a mechanism to allow for what we called asynchronous establishment of kosher in fields, right? Um, so these plants are holding on to their seed above ground. Um, then um, when we're talking about cropping systems, when a, when a farmer comes through to seed that field, it's um, that physical disturbance of the seeder is dislodging the seeds off the kosher plant and essentially seeding them with the crop, right? So it's allowing the kosher to um, seed itself after the pre-plant burn down herbicide, right? So there's another sort of implication there for almost the uh, the phenology of kosher and how and when it's emerging um, with crops. So as ominous as a kosher weed attached to the cedar may be um it's now even more ominous because you're you're trickling those seeds across the um the field you know charles i want to get back to the survey again because um you know some of the aspects of the survey were were interesting to me um you know first off it was uh what i believe what you referred to as uh you know a roadside survey um so i'd like you to maybe describe what that means in terms of of collection and then also in some of the results or in in the results you indicated um percentage resistance based on crop type um so you know there was percentages break broken out for for cereals and and oil seeds and pulses and could you just maybe shed some light on what that means in terms of how the sampling was done and maybe trends that were seen based on crop type and and what that actual description means for the sampling process yeah yeah so so first of all i guess to to touch on the methodology of the survey so it's it's what we call a uh, a randomized stratified survey, right? And so um, it's it, the sites are, are randomly selected um, and they're, it's basically randomly selected sites that have um, tumbleweeds, right? Um, or you can see either kosher or Russian thistle, which are visually obvious after crop harvest. Um, so it, the survey takes place in October um, it covers 300 sites, roughly, um, and in a province. And uh, what we do is is we um, we visit the fields, uh, collect seed from um, about 20 plants, uh, if there are 20 plants in the patch, and um, bulk all of the, the seed from those plants together. Um, and then that seed sample comes back to our um, our research site or our, our research center uh, where we um, 
further sort of thresh out the seed, clean it up, um, plant it in the greenhouse, and then screen it under controlled environment with different herbicides. Um, so that those herbicides have kind of, um, the ones that we focus on have, have shifted a little bit over time, uh, whereas prior surveys, um, they're, included group two herbicides. Uh, this most recent survey, we didn't include the group twos because the last two rounds of surveys of Alberta showed 100% group two resistance, right? So um, it was almost like uh, our efforts were better placed elsewhere, if you know what I mean. So instead, uh, we've actually added in fluoroxypyr, which wasn't really tested previously. Um, so we've tested fluoroxypyr resistance in on the Alberta 2017 populations as well as the Alberta 2021 populations. Um, and so um, th that makes more sense because fluoroxypyr resistance is something that's that's growing um, in these kosher populations. And so, um, oh, I can't remember. What was the other part of the question? <laughs> oh, the um, where... The, feet, the crop type that it was collected from and, and maybe what that means in terms of, I guess, again, tying it back to management, were there any trends that were seen based on crop type? But what does that, what does that really mean? Because I assume the crop type was what stubble you found that year, or what crop was there that year, but that really doesn't indicate what's been going on the past three years that may have brought upon that population or that resistance level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so in general, I mean, you can pull out some some very broad trends, I think, in, in the data, right, where, um, as an example, um, in, in some of the some of the previous surveys, um, I'll, I'll talk about the, the one from Manitoba, um, it was maybe a bit more apparent, where um, glyphosate resistant crops, right, so if you focus in on, on sort of a um, corn and soybean, for example, right? Um, we tended to find greater percentage of glyphosate uh, populations resistant to glyphosate in those glyphosate resistant crops because glyphosate is being used post-emergence in that year that we're sampling, right? Um, so you can pick up a trend like that. Um, a similar thing is, is with um, oxenic resistance as well, where we tend to find um, a greater percentage of oxenic resistance in um, cereals, for example, right, where where you 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 do find um, a little bit higher percentage of resistance or oxenic resistance in the cereals where you would be using those oxins post emergence. Um, so there are some of those trends, and and it it could sort of equate to selection pressure for resistance, um, indicating that that maybe. Um, some crop types select for different types of resistance, right? But in kosher, I think overall, it's it's really tough to actually pull out some of those trends because it is so efficient at um, at spreading, right? So being a tumbleweed, it can spread across multiple fields in a single year, right? So um, tying it back to the history of any specific field is very difficult because you don't know if that if that population or if that you're sampling if that was in that field in previous years or or if it blew in from neighboring lands right so um it's really hard to tie it back to to that sort of management history of a specific field i think okay no that 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 makes sense that's one when, when i was looking at the data that was one thing i was like okay what are we what are we trying to tweeze out here because um 
yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of complexity to that, but um, no, that, that makes sense. So, I mean, all this being said, um, the levels of resistance that are growing, we're, I assume we're seeing trends of increased resistance and increased um, incidents and, and uh, multiple resistance moving from south to the central part of the province. Is that, is that, could you say that's a trend we're seeing? It could be. It's it's not necessarily one that, that we've picked up on the surveys because the surveys are focused on the areas where kosher is more abundant. Um, but we uh, like we have noted several reports of kosher in general moving further north than it has in the past, right? Um, so uh, even talking about like central Alberta, um, like Red Deer area, for example, um, we, we've had quite a few reports of kosher there. Um, more so in some of the, what we call like rural areas, like ditches, railways and stuff like that. Right. Um, in addition, we've, we've had reports of kosher growing in the Peace River region, right? So Grand Prairie, for example, um, in 2021, we, we sampled a few sites in, in the Peace River region, just to see if kosher, if those kosher populations are producing seed, and we found that that certainly they they are able to produce seed um, given that growing season length, right? So um, we do see kosher. I think is 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 slowly moving northward, right? And uh, some of these um, these summers that we've been having with with warm weather and kind of open extended falls, uh, what that allows is greater accumulation of growing degree days. And it really is growing degree days that's limiting that northern range of kosher, right? So if, if we see greater growing degree days, that just gives it another chance to establish further north. So I can't help but ask this question, and, and uh, maybe we'll tie it all together with this, Charles, is, um, you know, we know that we can see kosher because of its biology quickly developing resistance and, and overcoming some of these pressures that that we are putting on it as a production system um, and it's overcoming that um, and now you know we, well now maybe we've been seeing um, a change in in the geography potentially of where it's growing or we're noticing it uh, because we're looking closer um, first off why don't we expect it to just develop resistance or overcome the pressure of geographical envi environmental pressure and find and grab a foothold in some of these areas we don't think it can grow because it's able to adapt um, and change because of its biology uh, and I guess you know what does this all mean for producers in the southern part of the province in terms of how they should be looking at kosher um, if they do have resistance um, but if they know that they're in the, the close proximity of it and maybe they haven't seen um, resistance tests come back yet, you know, what, what kind of action should they be taking? Yeah, so, so the start of that, um, as far as um, kosher evolution, right? So, so I think we would, uh, we would be naive to think that kosher is not evolving in response to environmental pressures, right? Um, so uh, for example, um, kosher evolving to uh, produce seed under few, a fewer number of growing degree days, helping its sort of expansion northward, right? Um, it's, it's highly likely that that is happening 
the question is, what's the magnitude and the rate um, that's allowing that, right? Um, and so I think very broadly, um, one of the rules of thumb is that um, the rate of evolution is, is almost proportional to the um, magnitude of the selection pressure. And so what I mean by that is that uh, we see herbicide resistance um, sort of at the forefront of a lot of our discussions. Uh, first of all, because it's impacting farmers, but then also because herbicides are a very large selection pressure on a population, right? Uh, so in general, herbicides are, I mean, they're registered because they're highly efficacious. They, they control a large percentage of that population. Um, so what that does is that it's selecting for the individuals that are surviving, right? And those ones are then crossing and contributing to subsequent generations. So if that selection pressure is larger, then it means that the rate of evolution is going to be faster. And um, in, in our whole range of weed species, like we saw this, um, this was partially the reason for, uh, for group two resistance right um, is that group two herbicides they came on the market they were very efficacious and that resulted in high selection pressure for resistance and shortly thereafter we started seeing group two resistant weed populations right um, that's just kind of one example within sort of the herbicide realm um, so this and this selection pressure is happening likely at an environmental uh, in response to environmental pressures it's just that those pressures may be not, um, they, they're not as efficacious as just treating a population with a herbicide, right? There's not quite as much selection pressure there. Um, so that was, that's kind of the first part. Then the second part uh, is sort of what does this mean for farmers and potentially farmers that, that don't have this issue yet, right? Um, so, I mean, kosher, we already talked about being a tumbleweed, it, it uh, spreads very quickly. Um, the other thing with kosher is, is that uh, it's that combined with uh, the fact that it's efficient at transferring herbicide resistance through pollen as well, right? Uh, that results in this sort of rapid spread of resistance that we're observing. Um, so it's in, in the Southern prairies, I mean, uh, Ecosia can quickly become an issue, right? Because it can essentially establish in a field in a single year, depending on whether it's blowing in from, from neighboring areas, right? Um, so these populations can, can uh, distribute themselves quite easily. Um, I think when it comes to herbicide resistance, uh, there's a couple things that are almost safe to assume now for kosher on, across the Canadian prairies. Um, the, the first is that if you're dealing with kosher, uh, it's safe to assume that it's group two resistant kosher, right? Um, I mentioned 100% of the samples that, that have been tested lately are, have been group two resistant. Um, the other thing is now we're getting at the same stage for glyphosate resistance where we're seeing um, upwards of 70 to 80% of the populations that we test are, have some level of glyphosate resistance. So we're getting to that same stage where it's, if you're dealing with kochia, um, I would just assume that it's glyphosate resistant kochia um, and manage it that way, right? Uh, because it's likely that if it's not at this point, it will be in a couple of years, right? Um, 
the, I think the testing uh, that really comes into place for um, some of these other uh, modes of action that we have to manage kosher rates. So um, the synthetic auxins, for example, we see variable cross resistance to synthetic auxins. So it's, it's maybe helpful um, from a management perspective to understand if you have resistance to one active ingredient and not the other, right? Um, also uh, coming down the line, potentially PPO inhibitor resistance, and then the whole range of, of other active or other modes of action that are uh, effective on kosher, right? So things like, um, like glufosinate, for example, where resistance hasn't been documented, but undoubtedly that selection pressure is out there, right? So keeping an eye out for, for these things popping up down the road. I guess short of all that, we wait for uh, drone lawnmowers, I guess, maybe, to go and, <laughs> and start controlling her, um, kosher patches. Um, Charles, I, 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 I greatly appreciate the time today. Um, is there anything else you want to make sure you get across to producers before we, before we finish up? I think we've been, we've been 40 minutes here. Um, so I definitely want to tie it up, but I want to make sure, you know, if there's anything else you want to make sure you mention, um, and, and feel free to share. Yeah. So I'm not sure how long everyone wants to hear about kosher, but, uh, I mean, I could go on for a long time. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so I think one of the things that that we need to at least mention is is uh, the fact that kosher. I mean, it it's tolerant of several abiotic stressors, right, uh, which allow it to thrive in these sort of unproductive areas of fields, right. Um, so talking about some of those uh, saline areas, for example, um, this is. Uh, these areas are, are where your crop really isn't quite as competitive, right? Um, so that's kind of almost the source of, of kosher populations. And from there, it can spread out into the rest of the field, right? Um, so management strategies um, that could potentially target those areas, I think, will be very beneficial in helping to mitigate um, the impact that, that herbicide-resistant kosher has on the more productive areas of fields, right? So... Um, you, you mentioned there drones uh, for patch management, but in general, um, I think there's a whole range of other options for those patches as well, right? Whether it's simply mowing the kosher in those areas or um, perhaps exploiting some, some variable rate technology, right? To in those areas to help shift the competitive balance in, in favor of the crop. That, that's one potential option. And I think that needs further research. Um, but uh, the, other, the other thing is um, those areas of fields potentially, because they're not quite as productive, it's quite likely that farmers are taking a loss seeding through those areas in the first place, right? So um, it's it makes sense from an efficiency standpoint as far as just seeding straight through a field. But from a biology standpoint and... Um, and considering the fact that these are essentially breeding grounds for herbicide resistance in kosher, um, it makes sense to consider maybe seeding it down to like a, a perennial salt tolerant um, forage, for example. Yeah, um, maybe we can have you back on sometime for a part two, and we can talk about uh, potential. But I mean, it all it all ties into it, right? There's so there's there's so much depth that comes with the biology and the challenges of of um, herbicide resistant kosher and 
um, you know, that, that second part of, of what, what are the potential management tactics? What, what do we need to get a better understanding of, not just from the biological control of kosha, but from the economic standpoint of the farmer as well, right? Um, and where that ties into short-term versus long-term, because if the upfront cost of these things is much greater than and the yearly budget requires, but what does that look like on, on a four-year budget? Um, and also what are the neighbors doing? Um, so it, it's, you know, it, 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 it lends itself obviously to a, a much larger conversation and a, and a community-based approach really, I, I imagine um, is going to be really where we need to fall on something that um, what's on this side of the fence is on that side of the fence and, and vice versa. So um, yeah, again, Charles, thank you so much for the time today. Um, it was great chatting with you and uh, I'm sure we'll do this again soon. Yeah. This was Thanks very much for the discussion and, and your, your interest in some of our research that we've been doing here. Um, so really appreciate it. All right. Well, enjoy uh, upcoming spring and, and we'll chat soon, Charles. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Growing Point Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to rate, review, and share this podcast with all of your friends. This helps us grow and get our message out. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to albertawheat or albertabarley.com and sign up for our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles, interviews, and the newsletter. See you next time.